Welcome to We Are Chafee Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being based in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Rick Biederman and Katie Welter. Katie and Rick are married partners in a life of ranching and historic renovation and other adventures. We talk about when Rick and Katie met on a 75-day outdoor leadership adventure in the mountains. They had come to that experience as individuals, strangers, who unwittingly had both traveled from Chicago to get there, and they left as a couple bound for an amazing future together. We talk about what led them to leave behind careers as a teacher and a lawyer in the Midwest, and ultimately to make a leap of faith into buying an historic 180-acre ranch in the Arkansas River Valley in Colorado. We talk about learning on the job at their watershed ranch, and the 50-year project that they see there and about how they came to be owners of an historic renovation project of a 1936 gymnasium. We talk about leadership, land conservation, and a passion for serving the community, among other things. I think one thing this conversation makes very clear is the tremendous partnership between Katie and Rick, in all the ways. Their complementary skills, their shared interests, and their energies for making their piece of the planet a better place. We Are Chafee Looking Upstream is part of the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. It's a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. As always, show notes and the transcript of today's conversation are on this episode's webpage at wearechafee.org. Okay, now here we go. My conversation with Rick Biederman and Katie Welter of Watershed Ranch. Rick and Katie, just welcome to Looking Upstream. It's great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this, and I really am glad to get to know a lot more about you. Thanks for having us. We're looking forward to it, too. Yeah, I agree. So I think my, my opinion from afar has been that the two of you are adventurous people. I think you've done adventurous things, things that are compelling and interesting to me, and I want to start with an adventure from your own story because I think I have found and you're going to let me know if, if I'm accurate here, <laughs> that many years ago, uh, the two of you had a nice backpacking adventure across and around the world. <laughs> and when you returned to the States in San Francisco, it looks like you eloped. You got married at the courthouse, no friends, no family. Am I accurate? Up, up to the last part, it was San Francisco City Hall and, okay. um, and my sister, Jen was our witness. Okay, so she how lived did, there at the time. How did this come to be? I mean, was this a <laughs> fairly spontaneous thing? Was this something you arrived at during this trip? What was the trip? I mean, how did you end up at the at the city hall getting married to cap this thing off and and just start, you know, a whole new chapter together? Well, I I think I can start. Um, I think it goes back to how we met, which was on a 75-day Knowles trip, backpacking, rock climbing, and river travel. And so we had met on a giant adventure um, and just kept craving it ever since. So when we drove back to Chicago together, where we both happened to live, um, I went back to teaching for the year. Katie went back to doing law school. Um, 
and after that year we were we were craving more adventure and so we kind of said what what can we do how can we do it and how does it sort of fit within the framework of of our education um, and my job can can we make it work and and so we derived this plan to to take a little trip around mostly the eastern hemisphere um, and in doing so we we got engaged in Nepal at the top of a mountain uh. and um, yeah kind of continued around on our travels and and started talking deeper about how do you want to get married? <laughs> and I think it took about two days of of kind of figuring out, well, oh, man, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do this. This is a lot of work to plan one day of our <laughs> lives <laughs> versus thinking about the bigger picture, which is our lives and our future together forever. And And so on that trip, we decided, let's do what we want to do. And we said, Let's get married the last day of this trip. And Katie's sister was in San Francisco. We thought that was that's where our flight was going home. Um, let's do it and, and start our lives, yeah, the way we want to. That's awesome. And getting engaged on top of a mountain in Nepal. A mountain pass. <laughs> I don't want to oversell my mountaineering creds. <laughs> it was 18,000 yeah. feet. Well, yeah. I, I think most of us around here will take it because we've not been up yeah. To that point. Yeah, it was the Thorongwa Pass on the Annapurna Circuit in in Nepal, which is a really incredible place. Um, but, yeah, I think it set the tone for our, the rest of our lives because we approached that decision the way I think we've approached a lot of decisions since, which is, you know, life is short, time is precious. How do we want to prioritize it? And we just said, like Rick was saying, I think we said one of us should really want to plan this wedding <laughs> if we're going to have one. And it was kind of a one, two, three, not it situation. <laughs> and we realized then let's not. Um, let's let's be married and and put that time into and, and of course, other resources into other aspects of our lives. I can really appreciate that. And I'm not going to go too far down my own story here, but there there is some resonance <laughs> with me and my wife, Becca. I proposed to her in India. Mm-hmm. We kept it really small, like fewer than 10 people, and went away for that too. So I can really feel and, and vibe with what you're you're describing. What I'm curious about with you, Rick, is because of that engagement, was that something that you had already had in mind and prepared for, had a ring, had, you know, that sort of thing when you went across the world? Or was this more of a spontaneous, um, you know, no ring needed kind of moment? You know, I think it was on my mind as we were planning the trip while living in Chicago. You know, the, the what if, is this the right opportunity? Does it make sense? And a few months into our travels, we were in Thailand, and we did a lot of neat classes in Thailand. One of those was jewelry making. And so <laughs> as we were making jewelry with these local Thai, this local Thai man and company, um, you know, I had made a necklace, Katie had made a ring, and I was just sitting there going, huh, well, maybe, maybe this is where I get a ring. Maybe I, we, you know, we make it together with this guy, and, and that seems like an ideal way to 
to tie the knot, make the knot. Um, and so that's what, yeah, we did. We got our rings from the same guy that taught us how to make the jewelry. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> so you knew it was coming then? I hid the rings. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we were on the same page. I just put it that way. Yeah. yeah I didn't know when and um but but yeah i mean it was you know that that Knowles trip was really intense again 75 days which we just always felt like translated into more like years in terms of hours spent together and then the the backpacking trip i still i can really see the like log from that i mean we moved to a different place an average of once every other day over six months and so just really intense and I think that brought us together in a way that you know few other experiences could absolutely you're you're talking about two kinds of experiences that really fast track the relationship in whichever direction or whatever direction it's going to go it's like we either feel that this works (laughs) and here's a lot of reasons why that are really clear right away you know, it's if you think about being set up on a blind date, you know nothing about a person, right? That's one approach into dating. But the two of you meeting at this Knowles course, you already instantly know some common ground, a willingness for adventure, an interest, 75 days. I mean, we're not talking about a weekend. It's not just camping and sitting around the fire, right? And in, in fact, well, tell me more about that because I only know so much. I've not experienced it myself. <laughs> I think that... Um you know, we always look back at, back at it and go, we happened to live in Chicago, but met in Wyoming, didn't know each other in Chicago. And there was probably no way that we were going to meet in Chicago, had different interests there in the city. Um, lived on opposite ends of the city. And when you just sort of hide in the mountains for, for a couple months, um, where there actually is nowhere to hide from your peers that you're on the trip with. Um, yeah, you really get to know each other. And Katie and I happen to be about four or five years older than most of the other students. It was a group of 12. Um, and so there was some bonding over that, kind of being <laughs> mom and dad, which at the time I was 28, Katie was 26. Um, we weren't at all thinking about mom and dad or children or anything <laughs> like that. But through that experience combined with, um, you know, no substances, no alcohol, no nothing, um, you really get to know each other. There's a lot of adversity. I mean, it's inherently uncomfortable, you know, I mean, you're just, it's physically challenging. It was unseasonably cold that for that first 30 day backpacking portion. I mean, we were post-holing every day we weren't wearing we didn't have snowshoes we weren't prepared for several feet of snow um but that's what we got and you you know river serious river crossings like up to waist level rushing water where you know it really brings you together and puts you through the ringer of a lot of different social emotional physical environmental experiences that yeah you feel like okay, we've been through all these things that might have taken us years to go through um, in a relationship, you know, outside of that kind of setting. And yeah, we felt like we could sort of evaluate each other pretty, pretty well. <laughs> well, you really get a chance to see 
how somebody reacts under stress with that kind of thing. Right? Yeah. Are, are they positive? Is this somebody who's going to bring that positivity and can-do yeah. spirit into my life or, or compliment me with it or add to it? Or, or do they react really badly? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious. So I'm <laughs> approaching 50, right? I'm not in my 20s doing that. Is that something I could do, should do? For sure. You know, it, yeah, there are Knowles courses for all ages. Um, yeah, and in fact, we we know someone who went on a well, it was outward bound, but similar thing, um, dog sledding course for her 60th birthday, and okay. had a had a great time. So, and it was intense, cold, northern Minnesota, but. But yeah, that Knowles, they do leadership. I mean, leadership is the essence of the of the curriculum. Um, and so they adapt that to whatever student they're teaching. And they even, I mean, they're sort of known for, um, they teach NASA, for example. Like NASA has wow. you know, a, a relationship with Knowles where astronauts are doing Knowles courses in preparation for their missions um, as bonding and just trying out their skills in a whole new adverse setting it's not quite mars but or or the moon but um and i've i've been an instructor on and off with Knowles for the last 15 years um it's a great summer job after school got out as a teacher i'd go out there to wyoming or montana mostly um and work anything from a two-week to a four-week course um the whole range of kids i mean it i did groups of kids that were in their 14 and 15 year old, but also instructors and teachers who were wanting this skill would come. So anywhere from 22 year olds on up to 70 year olds. And the neat thing about it is you, you don't need a lot of experience. So if you've only camped, car camped for a day or two, they will get you where you need to be. Um, I had never camped. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'd I, never been to the mountains. I had. I, I think just assumed that mm -hmm. this was something you both had experienced and were into I mean, because 75 days, that's yeah. really leaping in. <laughs> no, I had, I had had a serious health issue that prior year and then my summer work plans didn't work as I thought they would and had made a lot of bucket list items and was like, I'm going to learn to camp. I'm going to do it right. <laughs> and, um, Noel's definitely whipped me into shape and all we wanted was to come back to that environment after that that was that was how we fell in love with the mountains at least I did yep. I mean you had been to Montana in college yep I was kind of the South Dakota. road trip national park guy as a science teacher I was always teaching about these beautiful places but living in Chicago where you're limited in terms of geology and astronomy. <laughs> and so every summer, yeah, I would kind of bounce around. And getting that taste of car camping made me really want to figure out how, how do I go deeper into those woods and avoid the crowds and, and figure that out. And yeah, 35 days was a lot of camping at one time. I lost almost 30 pounds in those 35 days back there. Um, and when you don't shower for 35 days straight, <laughs> you hit this moment after about a week where you're just like, oh, I thought I'd smell worse, but actually Equilibrium. I, some, something's <laughs> happening here where it seems okay. <laughs> well, if you jump into a creek, make a river crossing, roll in the snow, you know, whatever mm -hmm. is relevant to the time, mm -hmm. right? That all, <laughs> yeah, that takes the place of, of it. It sure did. It occurs to me that 75 days is comparable in time to the length of 
my basic training in the army hmm. and that what you're talking about might well be a basic training on the civilian side and one that I probably would have preferred to do, <laughs> honestly. So I'm just thinking about the skills and leadership in particular is a really important topic to me uh, from corporate career type things, again, from the military. Like I've had all these these experiences and observations of what leadership means. And for me, it's I tend to think toward lead from where you are, that it's not so much about the title you hold or authority that you hold over other people, but it's about the mentality that you bring no matter where you are in an organization. I'm curious what was being taught or is taught in Knowles camps and courses. They have their own leadership curriculum. Um, and I think one aspect of it that I really fell in love with, as you're describing, is anybody has the opportunity to be a leader, whether you're, you are stated today, you are the leader of the day. Um, but they really push what's called active followership, where you're not just following the line and get into zombie mode. Yeah. Um, you're, you actually have different checks and accountabilities um, to make sure that on this 10 mile hike, you know, you, you don't just tune it out. You're, you're always fine tuning the group. Um, whether it's, you know, safety officer or, um, you know, somebody in charge of hydration. It's, it's all those little bits and pieces to keep the groups interconnected. And yeah, active followership that that phrase is not one I've heard before. Mm -hmm. But I like that. I like the, the essence of that. Yep. Yep. And and my going on this trip was actually stimulated by one of my chemistry colleagues putting a um, a Knowles catalog on my desk. And she said, did you know you can get graduate school credit for going on this camping trip? <laughs> and I looked at it and went, oh my God, this would be so much fun rather than being kind of trapped in a classroom in June, July, and August. <laughs> um, and then looking at the curriculum and how much of it was leadership and having been a coach also at the high school level, I just thought, oh, this is perfect. This is really going to add to the repertoire and and show me places I'd always wanted to see. What did you coach? Uh, football, baseball, basketball, bass fishing, which is a high school <laughs> sport in Illinois. Okay. Uh, and badminton. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a range. <laughs> I was all over the place, but you know, it was all of them were such unique experiences. Um, and you really got to work with the whole gamut of students and student athletes. And that's what I really enjoyed. It sounds like it. What were you doing? Uh, Katie, I know Rick had said you were in law school at the time, and I know you're an attorney. You, you did finish law school, mm -hmm. but what else was going on in your life around that time? Um, so Rick was coaching every sport and teaching science. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, actually the, the sort of the context that in a lot of ways brought us to our trip and then that, that you had brought up and then out here eventually is um, I think the defining thing of that period of my life other than law school is that my family was in the process of um, well my, my family had owned a community bank in Indiana and I was deeply attached to it and um, very very close to my father who ran the bank but um, a majority of the shareholders of that bank had decided to sell the bank. And um, it was a time when, when high quality banks were worth a lot of money because a lot of banks were failing. It was that 2006 to 2008 kind of okay. period. 
Um, and so that was all consuming for me. We were in lawsuits, my dad and I, for it was about six years. And so, and in 2006, I had um, some serious medical issues that, um, Fortunately, I was living in Hyde Park in Chicago, so I was treated by the University of Chicago, so that was wonderful. Um, but I, you know, without going into too much detail on those, both of those events in my life, I had spent my whole life w- never questioning that what I would do would be run the bank. That was, that was always going to be my plan um, from a very young age. And then um, in 2006, that, that changed dramatically. And so, um, yeah, so then that, that led to, um, my dad and I tried to start another bank. <laughs> and we, you know, again, I don't want to get too much in the details, but we, we did receive a charter for, for a bank um, through the comptroller of the currency. But that was right amidst the financial crisis. And the FDIC stopped, put a moratorium on issuing insurance for new banks. So okay. yeah. you kind of two government agencies not really communicating that well and one saying yes we want you to do this and the other saying hold up we can't do that we can't insure you and you can't have a bank without fdc insurance so right the um that led to the the trip that that you had brought up earlier which was you know the plan was go back to indiana and start the new bank fdic said can't do this so we said Wow, I mean, I I had taken the bar exam for Indiana. I was, you know, completely set on that plan. Rick had actually given notice at his job, um, and so then here we were, kind of like, well, now what? And we tried to, I think, I think in all instances in our lives together, have tried to kind of leverage those situations into an opportunity to reflect and think about, well what can we do with this time? It's not going the way we expected. Um, so we sublet where we were living and got out of Dodge and came back with a whole new perspective. Um, and, and I think that was when we really, we really started thinking seriously about moving as well, although it took another, what, eight years. <laughs> Are you talking about at that time, that's when you took the big trip over to, yeah. to Asia and so mm-hmm. on? And ultimately would get married. Yes. And so that for, at that point, like the plan had been, not been to take that trip. It had been to move to Indiana. Gra- I had graduated law school and we were going to go into business. I was going to go into business with my dad. And um, But again, because of the financial crisis and the fact that the FDIC just stopped insuring banks, um, we, we just had to completely pivot and say, now what? So we came back from that trip in 2010, early 2010. Rick went back to teaching at the same school. Uh, it was a wonderful school. And I actually started working in systemic reform in Chicago, so specifically with court systems. And a lot of that had to do with exposure in various instances in my life to the dysfunction of government and courts and justice systems in particular. Okay. So. I spent seven years doing that. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how life can turn out? And, and attitude makes a difference too, right? Is when you when you run into issues or things or, you know, the, the rug gets pulled out from under you and you think, well, this is going to be my future, my life. This is where we're going to live. And now look yeah. where you all are and what you are doing. And it's a very different life. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would you change it? <laughs> Do you love where you are? What's going on? Oh, man. I'd say absolutely. I, I think... 
in a lot of ways, it was a blessing in disguise. I mean, would you rather live in Colorado or Indiana? <laughs> I know it's, my answer. It's, it's, I'm ambivalent because I, I'm very happy here, and I wouldn't trade it. And I would, if I could go back, I wouldn't. But I, I was deeply invested in that path, and so that still hurts. Very a bit. much regret the way it went. Yeah. Okay. So, so okay. yeah, I can't say that I, I, and I certainly don't think other members of my family would feel that, um, like this all turned out for the best necessarily. But yeah, I mean, I think we made the most of it. Absolutely. I always feel like I wish I could live three or four lives because sure, yeah. I you know, <laughs> want to do all the things. But but yeah, this is a, we're very happy here. Don't misunderstand that. I think a lot of times it is about we made the most of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if we go back to the Knowles courses or things like that, where a lot of those things, they are experiences and opportunities to test ourselves and learn how do we make something of this moment yeah. that otherwise could be very defeating. Speaking of this spirit of adventure and risk tolerance, it sounds like, and a willingness to try new things and leap, you did make the move. You came out to Colorado. You bought a ranch that's, I'm thinking, from what I have seen, somewhere around 180 acres, give or take. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing we've talked about yet says you were ranchers. You had ranching <laughs> skills, ranching knowledge. How did you decide to jump into this, and did you feel like – this was a total leap. Did you have any sense of what you were doing at all? <laughs> well, I think it's important to note that I do come from a long line of fam- farmers. So, okay. I mean, I have that in my genes and was raised. Um, I, my, my dad, he would say he worked very hard to not be a farmer. <laughs> but yet okay. I, you know, it's definitely part of um, my family. So it felt that felt comfortable. Um, but also a long line of kind of crazy entrepreneurs. And so the idea, like, and, and I, I lead with that because I don't feel like that's not your background, crazy entrepreneurs and farmers. <laughs> so <laughs> no. like when we would drive past, we, we were living in Leadville and there was a for sale sign on the ranch and we would drive past it every day because we were working down here. And as many other people, many, many, many people have told us they saw that sign too. And we thought, why don't we call the number and find out about this place? Um, and I think I handed it over to Rick because the, the next page of the, that story really comes through in our getting to know Franklin Springer, who owned the ranch at that time. Yeah, I, I guess what I can say is I've always been somebody who has been up for the next adventure. Um, who can I learn from? How can I find a mentor? who can help me understand how to solve this problem. Um, I was a science teacher for 16 years at the same school, like you said, coaching multiple sports. I I thought that was going to be my career path forever, um, you know, till retirement. And I, I think having met Katie opened this whole new window of adventure and a little bit of risk taking. Um, but every time along the way, it's just intoxicating what we were able to do, um, the trips we've been able to take, um, the, the challenges we've been able to say yes to. And in a lot of cases, the su- success um, that we've been able to have. Um, so the ranch is, we always call it this 50-year project. It's, it's a project, and our mindset is it's going to take 
every bit of 50 years to to figure it out and evolve and create something that we feel proud of, something that's um, sustainable. Uh, conservation and preservation are two words that Katie and I use all the time, and it applies to the ranch, it applies to the McGinnis Gym project that we're working on, um, and it applies to the, the U.S. Forest Service building that got us out here. Um, so, yeah, I love adventure. I do. Um, I. But with the ranch, we, I mean, to go from seeing it on the highway, from the highway to owning it and operating it, the it took a lot. I mean, you probably spent, I don't know, at least 50 hours with Franklin. Yeah. and, and Before we bought it, just like, show us how this works. Um, and how we, did he feel about that? Was that a weird request to him? Because he would have maybe expected a fellow <laughs> his, rancher to buy it or what? Kid, no, his kids didn't want us to even meet him at first because they thought he'd kill the deal because he would reveal how complicated the place is. <laughs> and because he had. But really, it was also Franklin was never going to sell to anyone who didn't get it. Like, this was his baby. And okay. Rick had to almost prove himself with Franklin because there's, I mean, there's over six miles of buried underground pipeline. There's hydroelectric plants. There's obviously the hay with all the equipment that goes along with that. Um, and so Rick accompanied him. We made tons of videos. And I think over time, Franklin saw that Rick could understand all of that, all of those operations. And then Franklin did it all himself. But, you know, I have kind of I had to learn from him you know the hydro's regulated by FERC that's the same Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that's the same agency that regulates the Hoover Dam like this is wow. it's a bit of overkill but also all the relationships that he had with different property owners and hay buyers and you know and just there's a lot of legal financial aspects but also all the agricultural and scientific aspects of the property so together, we just kind of had an interview for the job with him, and I think <laughs> we really, we really loved him. He he passed away two years ago, and okay, we say, I mean, it's like at least every couple of weeks, like, man, I wish Franklin was still here. <laughs> Even seven years later, I I'm always uncovering or mystified by something that's happening, like. Why has this not happened in seven years? And right now, this pipe is just oozing water from the earth. What What is going on here? And I used to always be able to call Franklin, uh, or at the very least, go back to that 50 hours of video footage. Thank God for <laughs> iPhones when we, were, when we were buying the place, because I yeah. just said, tell, tell me where the bodies are buried. Tell me how to fix this. And anytime I called him, I mean, yeah. even in his mid, mid-80s, he had the answer, and he knew what was yeah. going on from a thousand miles away. It was so amazing. That was reassuring. On the other hand, a lot of people in town told us not to trust Franklin. He's kind of known as a character, and um, so we were over overcoming some of that. So it was a huge risk. The week we went under contract, we found out we were pregnant, and that was also like, I guess we're really doing this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Rick has learned the the farming operations beautifully, and I almost think like not having a specific agricultural background might have been to your benefit. 
benefit. Just being a, a physics teacher is almost what you need. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, sure, my education has helped, but the on-the-job training is, <laughs> is really what gets you through every day. Um, it's, it is a complicated project, um, but, you know, I believe in the environment and protecting it, and so the work that goes into it is, uh, I'm very proud of what it's becoming. I think your willingness to learn and have the patience in the, in the long-term view, you know, you, you mentioned a 50-year sort of idea here, those all feel a little bit foreign to me personally, and it's admirable. If I have a repair at my house to make, and I think, I don't know how to do that one, it's going to get procrastinated and put off because I'm like, I don't, I mean, I'm not even looking for YouTube videos to tell me how, <laughs> because it's already just like, this is just going to take more time. And you took on this huge ranch and all of these things that are beyond my understanding, certainly, with a willingness to say, I'll learn what I need to learn on the job. That's often going to come through, I don't want to say mistake, it's, it's through things happening, not actually of your doing, right? It's, yeah. it's of things just happening <laughs> that you didn't foresee. Yeah, yeah well, that's I'm, every day. <laughs> I, I think something I've learned about farming is, it can be lonely. You can be isolated out there working on your land, and every day something could break. I mean, most of the farming out here is you're, you're in a four- to five-month irrigation window. And so if you don't use your tractor, you know, for three months straight, mm, you yeah. go to that thing, you're crossing <laughs> your fingers going, oh, I hope this thing fires up like it did right. three months ago. You know, there there is a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong, but at the same time, unlimited opportunity to say, how do I fix this? And I, along with Franklin, um, our neighbor to the south was a tremendous mentor Ron and Kathy in, in the farming industry. Ron and Kathy Haug, who recently moved to Kansas back home um, to their home state. And yeah, I sure do miss him because... See, they went to Kansas. It wouldn't be so bad to go back to Indiana. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm defensive of Indiana. Oh. I, I will say one, one thing that I hope comes across is that I could not do the ranch without Katie. Katie couldn't do the ranch without me. We, we have these skills that really complement each other. And I think that's also what's allowed us to say, oh, well, maybe we can try this other project. How do, how do we yeah. use our skills together? If one of us goes, well, it'll yeah. be hard, yeah. hard to run anything to get yeah. by ourselves. I would imagine that solitude out there that you described as being tough, which, of course, it can be. It can feel isolating and you can feel alone in trying to solve a problem or whatever. But I think that's also what appeals to a lot of people who like the prefer the idea. I'd rather be outdoors. I'd rather be working with my hands, doing my own work my own day, rather than in an office, in a cubicle with a boss sitting on my shoulder. Mm -hmm. You know, so I, I imagine it's a good balance of days where you feel, well, maybe the whole range of emotions. I don't know. It depends on what pops up, right? Yep. I can be all over the place. Um, I, I do miss teaching, and I've had a number of part-time teaching jobs here in Colorado since we moved, and those have been hugely satisfying and gratifying. And, and so when I have a little bit of that, connecting with kids, um, teaching science, and a little bit of the farming, I feel like that's, that variety is what I truly thrive on. Um, and so that's, that's kind of always 
what I'm looking for is this kind of crazy yet balanced combination. Let's talk conservation. You mentioned water. You mentioned only this sort of modest window out here for when there's enough irrigation or water available. Obviously, we know in the West it's a it's a growing issue, and it has been. Is that the top priority for you two with conservation and just care and and how you view the future possibilities for this ranch? Is it fire mitigation? You know, what are the leading concerns as you look into the future of this 50-year idea? I I think it's evolving. I, I think we are, in a lot of ways, planning and reacting to what the environment throws at us. I mean, I'm not sure this was the best place to, to start a farming operation when you're <laughs> side by side with all kinds of cactus, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and so when you see that, there's some perspective out there going, hmm, are we doing the right thing? What are some other options? You know, is there a way to subtly transition fields from what they are now to something you new and unique? Um, how do we play that out? But you have to learn about the land first and the machinery and everything else to understand, okay, what is the next step? And then... Yeah, it's just been really... We're just through like phase one, which has really been a study of the property. I mean, the the water, the soil, the forest, but also the historic buildings on the property and the history of the property. I think we're just now transitioning to what do we do about with all this? And I, I will say well, one of our top concerns is that the property remain in some states similar to what it's in today in the sense that it it acts like a nature preserve. And I think that even in the time we've been there, that's only increased, meaning we perceive that we see more wildlife than ever. And we think that is maybe due to the fact that their habitats are stressed everywhere else. So increasing numbers of, you know, whether it's owls or elk or uh, moose, at, you know, bobcats, mountain lions, bears, <laughs> all of which are we're seeing in higher numbers, either on game cams or just with our eyes. And we feel good about it being a place like that. But we also want it to be a place that our, our um, children, but other children and other people will enjoy forever. And so figuring out like, that's what's like, okay, we understand the property. We know we have this big goal, which is that it be protected, finding the right vehicle to accomplish that is now the the challenge. So we've explored conservation easements, we've explored charitable trusts, we've explored, we're looking at potentially converting one of the lower fields to be a natural burial preserve, which would be an example of, look, it's going to be protected forever, but it has some revenue coming in from it. Um, What would that be? I'm sorry, what is a It's like a cemetery where people anybody can be buried there, but they just can't be embalmed. And so people who either want their cremains to be buried or their body in a natural state and, um, you know, and, and it just, it's a, it's a cemetery. I mean, that's really what we would explore, but that's a permanent decision similar to a conservation easement where it's like, there's no going back from being a cemetery, but we know that, for example, watering hay for horses and cows 
that's probably not the best and highest use of water today and you know seems almost certainly not the best and highest use water 20 50 years from now and yet the legal framework around water in Colorado is so complex that any change of use of your water entails an expensive, lengthy, and contentious process. And so, you know, in this second phase, it's like, okay, what is the best use of the water? Could it be we use a fraction of what we currently use and then grow more native plants? Well, how would that affect the elk who love the hay? You know, there's trade-offs to different approaches, but ultimately it's our hope that what we pass on is protected. And and then I think hand-in-hand hand with that, we want it protected. We also want our children to not be so burdened by it. Like, we hope, of course, like any parents, that our children want to stay, and, and, and it is a very special place that they love, But they shouldn't have to choose between, like, they shouldn't have to devote their entire lives, as Rick does, to maintaining, and and I devote a lot of time to maintaining that property. They ought to be able to pursue their own livelihood while we hope still having some connection with the ranch. Um, We want to be realistic about all those things, and and we're not quite sure, you know, there's a mix of, of, we have to figure out the right mix of preserving it, also generating some income. We also have many neighbors in a subdivision that surrounds the ranch. And so, you know, it's not going to become a concert venue. We probably wouldn't do that anyway, but like we're cognizant that that's not an appropriate use given that there are many neighbors nearby. Um, but just we've vetted so many different ideas for it while learning about the property. But I think we can definitely say conclusively that the goal is to protect it. A word coming to my mind is investment. How, if we can put this back to this idea of a 50-year mm-hmm. investment, vision, the willingness and the patience to work through all of these things you're talking about, the legal and bureaucratic matters, the actual hands-on in the field matters, you're investing yourselves in such big ways and for such a with such a long vision. I want to talk about community because you're also investing. You mentioned Rick McGinnis Gym. There are ways that you are investing off your ranch so much in community and being part of this community. And now I'm hearing through all of this conversation, there's really a long view on on your being here and doing that. So what does community mean to the two of you? I I think community is everything to us. I, I think we've, well, going back to Katie's story about her dad and her and community banks, I, I think a lot of what we're trying to do here does go back to that vision of what did a community bank do for the community? You know, and Katie can speak more to that too. But yeah, we're looking to invest in this community. Um, I kind of hate that word investment. It sounds so corporate to me. Um, yeah, but it, it resonates with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could <laughs> split the difference by throwing it out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but getting involved in the ways that we know how to get involved, whether that's through youth and through schools or whether that's through old buildings. I mean, the old buildings that we have worked on and, and, and brought us here, you know, 
they have all been community oriented. Um, even the ranch that we have right now, you know, it it's a long standing, one of the oldest in the county. And though the community doesn't use it daily like we do, um, it is open to a number of community organizations to utilize. And these old buildings, as Katie will say, they, they tell stories. And the people that have been a part of those buildings, whether building them or working in them or going to school in them, um, those stories are really important to us because they, they transcend generations. They, they help us understand where we came from or where this town once was and where it is now. And so in a world of change, which is what we're seeing, um, here in the valley, lots of new homes being put up, lots of people coming in, us being one of those seven years ago, eight years ago. In my household, too. Yeah. It, it, we, we want to make sure that some of those reasons we came out here aren't lost, be it environment and conservation or be it history. Katie? Yeah, I mean— I, I, d- I definitely think that long view, that's something I was raised with, even like indoctrinated with um, through through my family and, and the bank, which I mean, just, you know, it was an investment of, of our time. And I really, I mean, the people who worked there were my family. And I really saw the way a stable organization that, you know, collects deposits and reinvests them in the community simple, simple concept. Um, but it, it really, it transformed our schools. Um, it, it gave people a stable livelihood in an area that was affected by the volatility of the steel industry and automotive industry. Um, so it was just like a stable thing. And I think the vision was always that that, that be around forever. And, um, so I, without a doubt, I think everything I do that involves, like big decisions, I try to I try to do right by the people who worked in the bank, especially those who lost their jobs when it was sold, the community that lost, you know, as a result of that. And so, um, out here, you know, I it's really I think it's a think globally, act locally kind of a thing. It, it, at least for me, I we're in really really challenging times. You know, the planet, the people on the planet. Um, and my sister lives in in Turkey and Istanbul, and you know, seeing the the chaos um, that they've experienced, for example, like it's not just here; it's around the world. And um, I believe, I think we both believe strongly that the things our children and we'll all need to endure and cope with what's ahead for us um, those are those are fortunately things that. They don't have to cost a lot, you know, things like nature, things like um, history, music, art, um, and buildings um, and physical places are the most, they're the most tangible, like, representation of those ideas, and they bring people together to enjoy those things. These crazy times we're in, like, they're not without, without precedent because... You know, we look back to when the gym was built, for example, 1936. Um, you know, it was the height of the Great Depression. The the Nazis, Nazi Germany hosted the Olympics that year. You know, that's dark, dark times. And yet 
America's response was, let's invest everything we've got in public buildings, public arts, um, in our rural communities, in our urban communities. Let's get urban and rural together working. And we just, we feel like there's a need now more than ever for for those kinds of investments. And um, I, we hope that what the ones we're picking are winners, <laughs> not for us. I, I don't know that we need that per se ourselves, but we want to return these these assets to the especially children, working families, seniors in our community who, you know, they need they need these things. They need places to play. They need places to enjoy art, and they need places to do that together. The the gym, for example, you know, about twenty years ago, it was condemned for storage purposes only. Um, our main goal and the whole reason we're doing it is so that it does go back to the school system and that that gym will be inhabited by kids ages three to adults in in their hundreds um, utilizing the space 14, 16 hours a day. Like that is the feel good that we're gonna get from this this experience. We, we wanna bring that back to what it was in the 30s, which was a community gathering space of all ages and all kinds. Can you explain, either of you, in kind of a nutshell form here with the time that we have left, we're talking about you and ranching, <laughs> but then we're also talking about this gym and restoration. So for anybody who's not familiar mm-hmm. with anything of your story beyond what they're hearing right now, can you help us just connect those dots in, if it's even possible, a nutshell way of how are you involved in renovating a gym in the community? Well, the school needed help. <laughs> Uh, two years ago, they said we need we need to expand we we need to make a number of facilities improvements, and one of the things they offered up for sale in order to advance that goal was the McGinnis Gym, and the gym they also needed help with. And we have young children. Um, Rick's been a public school teacher. I grew up in public attending public schools, and we felt like, hey, we've we've had experience with preservation of historic buildings. The ranch has. 11 buildings I think and nine of them are on the National Register of Historic Places um, we I've served on Historic Preservation Commission for six years so I've benefited from enormous training and sort of networking in those areas we knew the right people um, including our neighbor John O'Brien um, who's been indispensable but I, I think really just the experience with the ranch prepared us for this idea that, yeah, I mean, it is a lost cause. Everybody had written off the gym. The school really has just been trying to find a way to safely demolish it. And we said, well, what if we could restore it and we could do it for the school district for the price of demolishing it? And they said, go for it. (laughs) And... um, (laughs) And, it, and that was, I mean, we closed September 1st last year, so we haven't had it that long, and we're, we're going to start construction here this summer. Um, so I think it's a, it, the, the common thread between the two is that both require a lot of different skill sets. Um, the ranching, which we don't have any cattle, so, you know, it's not, I don't know. But the ranch requires all the things that you've shared, Rick, but 
all the farming aspects, but also legal and financial, the gym also has been just an enormous partnership. I mean, we could list all the names, but just at the, off the top, the school district, Superintendent Lisa Yates, absolutely could not do this without their trust and support. History Colorado, which is the state's preservation agency, unbelievably, fight. They've, they're committed over a million dollars to the project. And the United States Environmental Protection Agency, which just gave a, gave the project another million dollars to get it to clean the building. Um, but pulling I'm, all those things together yep. is the common thread. And, and I think speaking on that, I would have to say again, this is Katie's specialty. She speaks government. She <laughs> she loves working with government. Not many people do. <laughs> um, and it's something she's been doing for a very long time. And and she has a skill set like no other to bring people together. Um, it's part of our origin story out here. It's how we got out here. We, we purchased a government-owned building, the U.S. Forest Service um, building on, on Main Street, which is now on the National Historic Register. Um, and it was through a government auction. Which and was most, quite complicated to navigate. <laughs> <laughs> and most people would say, I don't know, that's not, I'm not going to do that. But having the skill set to navigate that world has really allowed us to dive well, into it, it some It had of these. problems, too. It had a mobile home sitting behind it with no VIN and no title, with the hitch touching the building. You know, just stuff like we just we just like to take on projects where there's huge potential impact, and then you f- figure out why has no one done this yet and the reasons are like well it's <laughs> it's it's legally complicated it's f- physically demanding which i think you know rick has never shied away from from hard work physical work um and that's what all these projects have in common and we you know people have mentioned us other projects like the burl for example where you know we we definitely want to do more of this. We also have the branch to always come back to, to say like, well, if there's a lull in, you know, hopeless, complicated projects. There's 11 hopeless, complicated (laughs) barns and cabins on the ranch to fix. Yeah. (laughs) You have no shortage of work. No no shortage of of vision. Yeah. I really appreciate getting to talk with you. I feel like this only scratches the surface of so many things. Uh, I love that about this podcast. I feel like I say it in almost every conversation is that, oh, we sh- I just I want to keep going. But I hope that this shines light on, on something of your story for anybody who hasn't met you, shines light on more of your story for people who think they know you. It's been wonderful to sit and talk with you, both of you, Katie, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's really our privilege to be here and to be out here. All right, that was Rick Biederman and Katie Welter. If our conversation here today sparks curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also encourage you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversations like these. 
Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to Cahan 106.9 FM, our community radio partner in Salida, Colorado. To Heather Gorby for graphic and web design. To Andrea Carlstrom, director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment. And to Lisa Martin, community advocacy coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority. It's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, thank you for listening. And remember, as we say here at We Are Chafee, share stories, make change. <laughs>